Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Tuesday, October 6th. The feds are planning on bringing back the immigration lottery and opening the border to specific loved ones. We'll break that down with immigration lawyer Giddy Mammon. We'll get a breakdown of the changes to Canada's medical assistance in dying legislation from the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. And Toronto's Associate Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dubay, was our very first guest on the show. Let's talk about contact tracing. Uh, the city of Toronto have have uh, announced that they're not going to be contact tracing unless it's linked to congregate settings in long-term care or schools or daycares. Joe Cressy spoke about this yesterday. But the Ontario government then in the afternoon announced that they'd be providing about 200 additional staff to Toronto Public Health um, after the, the health unit said that they needed help with contact tracing. Will this allow you to resume contact tracing for every positive case or what will this allow you to do? We currently have 700 people working in contact tracing. So an, an extra 200 is very helpful. But um, right now, um, the gas is going. I mean, our cases are continuing at an accelerated amount. We had about 30 a day at the beginning of September, and now we're close to 250 a day. And so until, the, you know, until we start decelerating a bit and our daily case counts decrease, regular contact tracing on every single person, you know, even with 200 more, just won't be possible. All right. Well, I know that Ottawa is shifting to a web-based contact tracing tool where people can upload their own contacts online. Are you in communication with Ottawa Public Health? Because you're both hotspots right now. And can you tell me about their tool, if you know anything about it, and whether Toronto would be considering, you know, using something similar? We're definitely in touch with Ottawa and, and all of our uh, colleagues in public health. And so if Ottawa develops something that's helpful, we can certainly see um, um, whether we can adopt it in Toronto. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know much about the new tool, but what I would say is we are certainly looking at technological ways to help us with contact tracing. It's one thing to collect the contacts. I mean, we, anyone could develop a survey monkey survey to say, okay, complete this and we have the contacts. But we have to be able to integrate it. We have to be able to put those contacts into an information system and to be able to understand it. And so that's the part that the back end stuff that takes a bit more time. Speaking of technology and apps, um, I, I got an email from a listener today, funnily enough, right before I, I uh, got on the line with you. And he said that his daughter's a student at Laurier and she's staying at a student residence and she downloaded the COVID alert app about a month ago. Monday, the app told her she'd been recently exposed. She calls to book a, a test yesterday because the app told her to do so. She was told by the testing center that the app is unreliable and not to come unless she has symptoms. Are you hearing about similar stories in the GTA? We work with our GTA assessment centers to let them know the recommendations for testing. I mean, there have been a lot of recent changes in testing, and so it can be difficult to keep up. But we are certainly recommending that if you have been notified by the app, that you get tested, stay home, and stay home until you get a negative result. And we are still giving that guidance to our assessment centers here. Okay. Well, yesterday uh, we heard some bad news uh, from Doug Ford. If you're on the side of Dr. Villa, who had said she wanted a four-week shutdown of bars, dining and restaurants, and gyms, here's what the Premier said about that. I can't make a willy-nilly decision and just say I'm, I'm closing everything down and ruin thousands and thousands of people's livelihoods and, and, and their life. So show us the evidence, hardcore evidence, before I destroy someone's life. What kind of evidence do you think uh, Doug Ford is asking for? 
you know what? He has a good group in the Office of the Chief Medical Officer of Health that can certainly provide him with some of the public health evidence. I think at Toronto Public Health, we've tried to show, I mean, I've just talked about the acceleration of our case numbers. If you look, more than half of our cases are in those, you know, 20 to less than 40 years old. So they're young individuals. And we know from our investigations that, that we were doing even up until last week that a lot of the cases can be linked to bars and restaurants, a lot of them related to staff. We also know that indoor environments are higher risk. And we know that when we were in stage two in Toronto, we our case counts were actually quite good. And we knew that going into stage three, you could expect to see more cases. And so it, it, some, of the, some of the things that have opened up in stage three are more risky. And so let's go back to some of the some some sort of a stage two, not completely, but bars and restaurants, fitness classes where we've seen cases occur and cases spread in those situations to decelerate our cases. That's the goal. The goal is to get back to a manageable number of cases and to, to reduce that accelerated spread. Dr. Divilo, when she was speaking about gyms, was she talking about closing the gym for a month or was she talking about just closing the group fitness classes? Can you kind of clarify for us? Yeah, right now the the recommendation is for the fitness classes um, and for team sports. So that's where we're seeing cases occur um, in these indoor settings. Right. And it makes sense because a lot of people are close together and they're breathing heavily on each other. According to the Toronto Star, they've obtained some provincial data that has not been publicly released yet. It's kind of like a scoop for them. But approximately two thirds of the city has a test positivity rate of higher than three percent. In some pockets, it's closer to 10 percent. What can test positivity tell us and what are its limitations? Right. So I think when we're looking at the the neighbourhoods of Toronto, on our website, we do post cases and rates. And I think ultimately that's a very good indicator of what different neighborhoods are looking like. And we're starting to see, actually, I just went on it this morning, certain, like the, we've talked about the waterfront neighborhood uh, in Toronto. So downtown Toronto, people who live there having more cases. So you can, so that's one way to look at, uh, instead of looking at positivity. Positivity shows you of the people who were tested in total, like in the city or in that neighborhood, how many of them tested positive for COVID? And it's very much dependent upon how many people go for testing. If not a lot of people go for testing and only the people who are close contacts, like who very definitively have COVID go for testing, well, then your percent positivity can be erroneously elevated. So is it safe to assume that some pockets of Toronto, the uh, positive number of people as far as to like one in 10, you could be looking at, you know, two in 10, three in 10 positive cases. We don't know because we're just not getting the information quick enough. Yeah, or that people in those neighborhoods are not necessarily going for testing. And so I think we can still look at our cases and our case counts and rates in those neighborhoods that can definitely show that some neighborhoods have higher higher rates. And I think it's in those neighborhoods we have to encourage more people to go for testing. You're seeing now positivity being impacted as well by children are back at school and if they have symptoms they're going for testing and so some of positivity also has to look at different age groups because we have seen different positivities based on different age groups right and we're seeing some of these uh high these high pockets of positivity 
positive tests are coming from lower income neighborhoods. And the problem is convincing someone to go for a test is difficult in a situation where they uh, might not be able to take time off work. They're going to lose money if they do that. Uh, they're already cash strapped. It's, uh, it's a very difficult thing to do, but it's so important. That's right. There are a lot of there are a lot of reasons why testing may not be someone's first choice. And I think we need to be able to break down those barriers. I mean, uh, changes in the assessment center, waiting in line, the stigma that may be associated with it. There are a lot of factors, including the ones that you mentioned. Toronto Public Health is saying, you know, Thanksgiving, it should only be spent with members in your household. Um, Uh, You know, that's one holiday I think everybody's kind of wrapped their heads around because it's this coming weekend. But Halloween is looming. And apparently Halloween costume companies say they don't expect to see a drop in demand. And I've seen a lot of costumes out for a while now in the stores. Uh, Candy sales are up over the same period last year. I think people just don't want to make they want to make sure that they don't disappoint their kids if, you know, trick or treating doesn't happen and they have some on hand. But uh, Toronto Public Health plans on providing guidelines closer to Halloween. Do we know when you'll have the guidelines as to whether Halloween is going to be a go or not? Well, we're working on it. I think, you know, what does Halloween is a go or not? Like, is it trick-or-treating? I mean, is it dressing up? I mean, we can we can still dress up and have a, you know, a scary dinner at home, for example, right? Halloween is going to look different, just like Thanksgiving looks different. But we're working on guidelines. It's going to depend on where we're at, too, in the city, right, in terms of what we can safely do for Halloween. But mm-hmm. uh, we're certainly working on that and, and hope to get something out by next week. All right, but what will it do for a child if you put liver and onions in front of them? I mean, their mental health is at risk, no? <laughs> That's the scariest dinner I could think of. <laughs> um, finally, Dr. DeBay, in, uh, enforcement officers responded to 12 complaints relating to restaurants and bars over the weekend in Toronto. They resulted in three charges being laid. They're not going to release the names of the restaurants. We're in a pandemic here. Why are we not taking a stronger approach when it comes to rule breakers? Just define and we don't get to know where it is that they were breaking the rules. So we're, we're working on um, how to be able to report some of this stuff. Um, some of the legalities uh, prevent us from, you know, going forward before we've actually, say, issued an order, um, going public with that. Uh, and so we are working on a plan to do that. I think the bottom line message for everyone in the city is expect COVID to be anywhere you go. And I think that people can get a false sense of security by having the list of restaurants, uh, you know, that are posted to say, okay, don't go to that one. But, you know, these ones are not on the list, so those ones are safe. Well, no, actually, all of them, you have to expect that you could get COVID there. And I think that's the bottom line message, that we all need to take our precautions. And that's why we're saying stay with your household and stay home as much as possible. Go to the restaurant for takeout and bring it back Mm -hmm. home to eat, because right now that is the safest thing for you to do. Dr. Dubay, and the reality is we the province has suggested if you're going out to restaurants, you can only, the bubbles have burst. You can only go out with people from your own household anyways. So you might as well eat at home and get the takeout. I want to thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Have a good day. I was talking about this new poll that came out today, and it was talking about how um, we are very concerned about the second wave uh, across Canada. And when it comes to the border, 81% of Canadians want that border kept shut. So Uh, That's the border between the states and uh, Canada. But I think a lot of people would argue it's not the time to allow immigrants uh, to uh, gain access to the country. Like, if why are we uh, starting resuming the controversial 
lottery program that the government decided to uh, put the kibosh on uh, last year. Apparently, as of October the 13th, there's a lottery system to allow immigrants to sponsor parents. The feds are going to go ahead with this. Here to talk about it, our immigration lawyer friend, Giddy Mammon. Welcome to the show, Giddy. Good to have you on. Thank you for having me. You know, when when this uh, lottery system was uh, basically paused, it was paused so that the liberals could move to a first-come, first-serve online application system that they thought would be more fair. And I remember that was just a nightmare. We spoke about it back then. This left tens of thousands of people frustrated and furious because they couldn't access or fill out a form quickly enough. So we had you on to talk about it. They're going back to the lottery system. But is this the time to do it? I mean, can you explain the thought process behind this? Because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Well, first of all, um, most of the people who are, begin- who are going to be coming as parents or grandparents are not going to be coming uh, during the period of COVID. Hopefully, um, hopefully not anyways. Uh, those applications could easily take a year, two or three years to process. So what we're doing right now is we're going to have a window of opportunity between October 13th and November 3rd, a three-week opportunity for uh, Canadians who are interested in sponsoring their parents or grandparents to uh, demonstrate uh, uh, an expression of interest. And if they are oversubscribed, they can only pick 10,000 applicants. If we get more than 10,000 Canadians who want to sponsor, then we go to a lottery. But the lottery is going to be a certainty. There's no way that we're going to have less than 10,000 Canadians looking to sponsor. Okay, and the available spots are going to be limited to 10,000 this year, though. That's right. And uh, for 2020, it's going to be 10,000. But interestingly enough, in 2021, that's going to go to 30,000 applications. It's a very significant increase. And so this is for people who want their, their parents or their grandparents to come over to join them here in Canada, correct? That's correct. All right. So your your thoughts on this is this is the way to go. And, you know, although the headline line might seem shocking that we're going to allow uh, immigration into Canada at a time during the pandemic, it's it, the timing actually might be a lot later than than this headline indicates. Yeah, I, I, I think so. What what the what we spoke about last year was this ridiculous process where the government opens up the the um, the portal at let's say noon and by you know within 10 minutes uh it's already oversubscribed and people were shut out that was a ridiculous system uh and we simply said then why don't they just keep it open for a month or so let people uh, you know submit their expressions of interest in a month it closes and they just draw from a hat so that's exactly what they're doing now they, I, I can't imagine why they didn't do that last year but but that's the way it is so it is an improvement um, you know, it, this this program uh, really has been controversial for many, many years. A lot of Canadians don't think we should be bringing parents or and let alone grandparents uh, to Canada because uh, they haven't contributed to the tax base. They're generally less healthy than younger immigrants. Uh, they need care. They're more likely maybe to go on social assistance, etc. Um, but uh, although we stopped it for a number of years back in the day, uh, this is very, very popular with Canadians, especially uh, new Canadians who've come and immigrated to Canada and left parents behind. Right. And you're just, you are right now, I mean, guessing at the timing. So it's possible that these, uh, you know, uh, the, the people that win the immigration lottery could actually come in during COVID and have to, you know, do the 14-day quarantine. Sure. Sure. It, it's possible um, all of the, the uh, processing lines are all uh, slowed down. 
Um, I doubt very much that they would give this particular product line uh, any kind of an accelerated attention. Like I said, for the last few years, we're looking at a, maybe a two, three-year process. Um, but anything is possible. I just don't know that it's likely. All right. Uh, I'm also hearing that uh, on the 8th of October, it's the 6th now, so two days from now, uh, Canada will introduce exemptions to border restrictions. Uh, they will extend family members of Canadian citizens and permanent residents uh, the ability to come into Canada for compassionate reasons. The family members that qualify will include individuals in an exclusive dating relationship with a Canadian citizen or permanent resident for at least one year who have physically spent time with each other. These individuals uh, and these individuals, dependent children, if they have have any uh, non-dependent children, adult children who don't mean meet the definition of dependent children could come in grandparents, grandchildren, siblings, including half and step siblings don't have all the details yet. Apparently we're going to get more from our minister of immigration, refugees and citizenship next week, but pre-approval arrival approval is required and each individual must be staying in Canada for more than 15 days. In your opinion, when we have 81% of Canadians saying we'd like to keep the border closed, um, between Canada and the U.S. Is this way to go in, a, in the middle of a pandemic, especially a second wave? Well, uh, remember, they're still going to be subject to quarantine. Um, what, what we do know, all of us know, is that this, uh, this pandemic has created tremendous hardships. There are people who are trying to get married and they can't get married. They have to delay their weddings, their, their, their marriages. They have to delay, you know, the, a, a new life together. There are people who are coming, who want to come here to look after an ill uh, relative, a parent, a spouse, whatever. Um, there are lots of real situations that have to be addressed. The same way we need trucks to deliver food across the border, there is, you know, to, to satisfy our our requirements for food. There's also social requirements that we have, for example, to attend funerals and to do other things like that. Um, and a, there, we have seen a lot of heartache. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not the person to talk to about the medical risks. That's unfortunately going to have to be a question for someone else. But the hardships are real and they're tremendous. It's, it's for someone else to decide whether those risks are worth um, you know, the comfort that this is going to bring to Canadians. Uh, keep in mind that we are not uh, in most of these cases, we're not doing this for the benefit of the foreigner. We are often, if not almost always, doing this for the benefit of the Canadian. It is often the Canadian citizen who is here or a permanent resident who is here and who is ill who needs to be looked after. Or it's a Canadian citizen who is engaged or is planning to be married or separated from their foreign spouse. So we have to allow for some exemptions uh, as long as they don't threaten the wider public good. Um, there is a possibility of threat to the wider public good when uh, Minister Heiju said that a negative test uh, might uh, negate the need for a 14-day uh, quarantine. They're starting to examine that. I just think negative test results should have no impact on quarantine times. I mean, there's there's too many times where uh, you, know, you get a false negative or you get a negative uh, COVID um, test, and we know that it's because you're not shedding enough virus yet. Right. That, that, that's quite possible. I mean, there's certainly a case for having, you know, two consecutive tests uh, over a short period of time. I don't think that that would be unreasonable and that would allow you maybe to escape quarantine at that point if a second test is done. Uh, but I, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't feel I'm, I'm qualified on the science of the, these tests. 
these tests, you know, if they come negative, I would think that they're negative. But as you said, it could be a, a it could not yet be detected. And I don't know. I don't know that there is a test that is 100 uh, percent, you know, effective. Uh, I, I have to believe that there is some margin of error, and the question is whether or not uh, we want to accept that margin of error for the particular purpose for that person who's entering Canada. I mean, if you know, attending a funeral is an important uh, is an important thing to do, uh, vis-a-vis coming to look after a parent who is very ill and needs to be looked after. Uh, it's hard to say, and that's why border officers have a lot of discretion. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that they have any discretion on the issue of quarantine. Um, because those are, are set out very clearly. Um, but, uh, yes, I'm not sure if the quarantine is going to be effective. Uh, it, it, the waiver of a quarantine is going to be a good idea in all cases. Giddy, as I said, you know, we're going to get some more information about this from the uh, immigration minister next week. And now, I understand family members, but people are just going to lie about long-term relationships, especially if they're hot and heavy. It's the fiery kind. It's at the beginning. It's in the honeymoon phase. Isn't that a risk? A hundred percent. It's it's a risky business. Officers, uh, never mind COVID, during uh, you know regular times, we are always taking a risk when we accept that a person is getting married for legitimate reasons. There are always reasons that motivate people to come to Canada and say that they're getting into a legitimate marriage. Uh, what, For example, this process for what we call the extended family members, uh, people, for example, have to be in exclusive dating relationships uh, with a Canadian citizen uh, or permanent resident for a year. Uh, we How do you prove lots- that? Well, we have a bigger problem than that. We have lots of people who are fairly, for example, uh, religious, uh, who are uh, introduced to one another. Uh, they've only known each other for about, you know, four or five or six months, and they have plans to marry. And these are generally people who don't, you know, generally abuse the system. Uh, but this is how they get married. So they would not necessarily uh, uh, qualify under this new process, even though this is a step toward generosity. So the way that this is described, that you have to be in a dating relationship for a year with a Canadian citizen or permanent resident, is not going to um, ameliorate all of the the hardship that we are seeing at the border right now due due to COVID. Um, Yeah, but shouldn't people just put off marriages? Like, honestly, giddy. We're in the middle of a (laughs) pandemic. (laughs) It depends on how, 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 how much in love you are. And, and your values. For example, you know, I don't think I could have passed up on the opportunity to get married to the, to the woman I've been married to now for 31 years. Oh, man, so, make me look bad, Giddy. Thanks. <laughs> Listen, you know, like, like I said, I know, uh, I know um, we, we deal with people in many, many different religious communities. And once they have found the person that they believe that they are fated to marry, uh, mm-hmm. they have to go. And, um, you know, it's very, very difficult not just to be separated for a fixed time, but to be separated for a completely unknown time. I remember when this COVID thing started and I was saying, oh, this is all going to blow over in four or five weeks. I couldn't have been more wrong. And I can't imagine, I can't possibly imagine even today as we sit here in October, I could never have been persuaded that we would be here in October. And when is this going to be over? I have no idea. And there are people who finally found who they've been looking for all their lives, and it's very difficult to say no to them. And I'm not telling you that we should just throw caution to the wind and, and anybody who shows up at the border and says, yeah, I think I'm going to get married tomorrow, mm-hmm. um, that we should do that. But that's why we have border officers. 
and we are trusting them to be the gatekeepers to decide what sounds legitimate and what doesn't. So when you look at all of these announcements that the, that the minister uh, has been uh, promulgating, at the bottom line, you're always going to see a passage which says that at the end of the day, it's the border official who is going to determine whether or not you meet this criteria. And uh, right. they, have, they have quite a bit of experience and a lot of tools at their disposal. Uh, at their disposal. Sure. You know, believe and the ability not, to use discretion when you fly in with a private jet. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you, you know, uh, we have social media today. And so you can learn a lot about people who are not that important in the world, but yet their entire life story is out there. So it's getting increasingly more difficult for people to abuse the system and hide data about themselves. Uh, so I, I think it's a step in the right direction. It's not going to solve all the problems. But I'm at least glad that someone is looking at it and is trying to carve out some things uh, that are going to help. And as we go through this pandemic and as stress, stress points start to emerge, I assume the government is going to continue to look at these criteria and see if they still make sense. Well, Giddy, one thing is crystal clear. We understand now why you're an immigration lawyer and not a divorce lawyer. You are a hopeless romantic. <laughs> well, I, I hope my wife is out there listening somewhere. <laughs> I love it. At the end of the day, it's all about the happy wife, happy life. Thank you so much, Giddy. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's great to speak Cheers. to you. Cheers. Good talking to you, too. That's Giddy Mammon, who is an immigration lawyer. Yesterday, the Liberal government reintroduced legislation to change Canada's medical assistance in dying legislation to meet a court order deadline, uh, which is December the 18th to revise the law. Helen Long joins the show. She's CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. Helen, welcome to the program. Thanks, Kelly. So what, why was the deadline imposed by the court in the first place? Well, the, the Trushan decision actually came down uh, much earlier this year, in the or last year, sorry, and the first um, deadline was early in 2020. So as a result of COVID, the government has had two extensions, and the December 18th deadline would be the the final deadline for them to meet the requirements of the Trushan decision. Okay, and the challenge uh, was out of Quebec, and it centered around the fact that a patient within the legislation can only get medical help in dying if their natural death is foresee reasonably foreseeable. Um, so what amendments were made to the, this version of the legislation? Yeah, so that, that was the, um, I guess, the biggest piece that came out of this amendment. So um, Jean Truchon and Nicole Guadou were two Quebecers who had gone to the Superior Court in Quebec uh, to make the case that, that the law currently discriminates against uh, a person with disability who was perhaps not near their death, forcing them to endure both physical and psychological suffering. So the uh, First Amendment that the bill proposes is to remove that clause that natural death has become reasonably foreseeable as an eligibility requirement. It still plays a part in the safeguard process, but um, it actually ensures that the, the law is no longer discriminating against individuals in any one group. Uh, Justice Bo excuse me, Baudouin so was quite clear that, um, you know, there should be no discrimination of any group of Canadians. So instead of it being death being reasonably foreseeable, what does the legislation say now? So the rest of the eligibility requirements in terms of an irremediable and grievous condition, um, a number of other factors, those still remain in place. 
but you can actually, you know, you can actually remove that clause that death is reasonably foreseeable. For so, for an individual like Jean Truchon, his death, although his quality of life had significantly deteriorated, and he wanted to make the decision to end his life, his his natural death was not uh, reasonably foreseeable. He could have lived um, for years. So what it's done is it allows Canadians who are in that that place in between to still maintain autonomy in their decision-making, to maintain their dignity, and to really take control of their own end-of-life choice. Okay, that was only one amendment. What are the others that is in this uh, legislation? Yeah, the other significant one is what we call Audrey's Amendment. So Audrey Parker was a woman in Nova Scotia who a number of years ago uh, had brain cancer and wanted to spend one last Christmas with her her family. Because the law currently requires you to be able to give what's called final consent at the time of the procedure, Audrey and many Canadians like her opted to take her death earlier so that she wouldn't lose capacity and potentially not be able to access a medically assisted death. So the new legislation allows for the waiver of that requirement for an individual who's already been assessed and approved and who has scheduled a date for made in consultation with their clinician to waive that final consent, just in the event that they lose um, capacity between those those time periods. That's amazing, because there were a lot of people that had to make that painful decision uh, that yeah, they would die earlier than they wanted to. Certainly, and I think Audrey's case in particular really, you know, demonstrates the tragedy of that, that, you know, much as the individual wants to make that choice and and feels it's the right choice for them, they still want to spend the time they can. And, and to have to shorten that time is, uh, you know, is absolutely, um, it's a, just a horrible situation to be in. So do you think that the Liberals got this right, the, the amendments to the legislation? You know, we think it's, uh, we think it makes some great strides. I think there's certainly some, uh, the improvements give Canadians fair access to their constitutional rights, uh, and it will ease the suffering of, of many Canadians who fall into this category. You know, there are a couple of things that certainly we would like to see um, change or considered under the parliamentary review that's scheduled to follow Bill C-7. Like what? Well, this legislation, for example, specifically excludes those with mental illness as a sole underlying condition. And we think that's discriminating against that group and, and is quite likely unconstitutional. So that's something that we'd really like to see addressed during the uh, the parliamentary review. All right. So liberals uh, not only will be reviewing this in parliament, but they also need the opposition to help this pass. What are the likelihood of the opposition embracing the changes made to the uh, medical assisted uh, dying uh, legislation? Well, I think what's really important to note is there was some significant consultation that occurred uh, very early on in the bill. And we've also done a a lot of independent polling. And, you know, 86% of Canadians support the original Carter ruling to recognize medical assistance in dying. Uh, Over 70% uh, support the amendment to remove reasonably foreseeable. So I think Canadians are very much in support of this legislation. And that's what we want to see the government um, you know, we want to see the government acknowledge and and take the lead that the Canadians have set for them. Helen, I want to thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure having you on, and I appreciate uh, you breaking this down for us. Yeah, thanks so much. Have a great day. That's Helen Long. She's CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, and I have to say I'm very happy about the uh, clause taking out the reasonably foreseeable 
um, wording where death is concerned. I, I, I've always had a problem with that. And I think that, it, you know, it, Canada took a bold step when they decided to introduce a medically assisted dying legislation. But I think they didn't go far enough with the, the first draft of the legislation, the first uh, iteration of the law. And I'm hoping that things will be uh, adopted to serve everyone when it comes to uh, their right to die with dignity. And that is it for the podcast. Don't forget, we broadcast live between 9 and noon daily on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Enjoy your day.